is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, March 10th, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. Bruce Baldwin, Taylor Schwenk, Sarah Abbott are all back in Bristol. I'm Buster Olney in Montana. And Taylor, sometimes some people say that they have a stacked show, right? Do they have a, a star-packed show? Well, today we have one. It's so packed, Buster. We needed multiple days to record this podcast. I mean, it's <laughs> it's going to be for make for some healthy listening over the weekend. You know, you, you don't have to listen to it all at once. You can spread it out a little bit. We have a multitude of guests, um, a variety of opinions, and, and a lot of star power, too. I think that's the biggest thing with today's show. Yeah, so uh, I felt like Bob Melvin making out the Padres lineup and trying to arrange, okay, who's going to go first, <laughs> who's going to go second, who's going to go third. We got Joey Votto, future Hall of Famer, talking about the rule changes. We got Sarah Langs. We have Carl Ravitch uh, talking about the Carlos Rodon injury. Todd Radom is here with the first quiz of the year. And Mike Greenberg, Greeny, joins us to give us his reaction to what he's seen on the field this spring. All right, some news and notes as we get going. I mentioned Carlos Rodon. He's going to start the year on the injured list. Yankees general manager Brian Cashman made that announcement yesterday. Rodon. So he's got a mild strain um, of his butt elbow. It's on the on the forearm side right here. So it's a no throw for seven to ten days. Um, so he's going to wind up starting the season late. Yeah. So we'll get into that with Carl Ravitch about the impact and what the uh, information that we're getting is about the Rodon injury and whether or not this potentially could be something serious once they started playing yesterday after brian cashman's announcement it's the same old yankee jason dominguez has been putting on a show this spring driven deep to right field there it goes see ya almost to mars a three-run shot and it's 11-6 red sox he's made some noise this spring training i think number three on the spring for him Taylor, it feels like I got to remind myself that this guy's 20 years old when you see him run around the bases. Buster, I feel, you know, we're, we've been talking a lot of Anthony Volpe because of the shortstop situation, but this guy deserves a little more love. Yeah. And maybe the Yankees will give it to him because, of course, we have that left field competition. You know, when I was down in Florida, I had uh, sources telling me that, you know, if the Yankees uh, are, are struggling offensively and maybe need some left-handed bounce to line up, maybe they'd be out in the trade market looking for a left-handed hitter. Who knows? Maybe this guy will fill in that gap. The Phillies' Bryce Harper, back in the team's training camp for the first time after having Tommy John surgery in November, met with reporters. Uh, he talked about when he could be back. He talked about the All-Star break is sort of the time that they're going to solidify. And he talked about the DH. The one timeline that has been given was the day of the surgery. The Phillies put out a statement that said, you know, hopefully by the All-Star break. Yeah. Is that, I guess that's a timeline you're you're comfortable with uh, any earlier, I guess? Yeah, I mean, as of now, right? I mean, but things can change either way. Um, I could be after, I could be before. Um, but as, as of right now, that's, that's the date that we've kind of solidified. And, um, you know, we're not going to rush. Uh, we're going to be smart about it. We knew at the end of the year last year, and me playing through it the whole year, um, that this might this, this might happen, right? So um, we're thankful for the DH um, again. So I mean, uh, I was so against it, right? Um, but I'm all about it, and uh, I love doing it too. So um, you know, we'll uh, we'll get out there um, when I can. 
The WBC continues in this morning, at least there, you know, in the United States, the, the game was played this morning, Japan against Korea, and Japan blew out South Korea 13 to 4 as usual. Shohei Otani had a hand in that. The Angels, former MVP, first pitch, roped in a right field. Otani comes through. Japan's lead is four. That sound from FS1. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, I'm going to spin things ahead here. Sarah Abbott and I, we're going to be, we're going to spend a lot of time in Bristol on Sunday as we record our March Madness previews. We're going to walk through the brackets with Pete Thamel and Reese Davis on the College Game Day podcast. Uh, we're going to record those after the bracket is released. I'm going to stay up very late editing those shows, cutting up video clips, and they're all going to be in the feed come Monday morning. So as you sketch out your pl- your bracket plans, uh, you know, all your pools and everything, check out the College Game Day podcast wherever you're listening to this podcast right now so i'm thinking vanderbilt's going to be a 10 seed right let's i mean go. once they win the sec tournament shock everybody they're going to be a 10 let's go are you going to be glued to the, i know you're you're going you might be in transit what's what's your uh your watch scenario here uh as they go through i'm absolutely going to jump on the bandwagon mm-hmm. and pretend should. that i saw every game that they played this year yeah. and put on what do i have on is yes. a vanderbilt sweatshirt let's go taping the pod <laughs> i love it We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash buster. Just go to indeed.com slash buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes. The clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Joey Votto is the first baseman for the Cincinnati Reds. He's a former MVP. And Joey, I got to say, since all of these rule changes went into effect this spring, you're the first person I wanted to talk to because any player who stops by first base and talks to you always talks about how you see the game at another level, how you think at another level. So just uh, real simply, what do you think so far? 
All these new rules. I haven't played any of the games, but I've I've heard a lot of feedback from guys, and some are uh, adjusting, and uh, others are really satisfied. So um, there's only two camps, really. You can be dissatisfied or angry or push back, but um, I would put that in the adjustment camp because inevitably we're all going to have to follow these rules and and make do with them. Not make do with them. um, Make our game smoother. Uh, and more t- more efficiently run. Every other sport has a clock in some capacity. You know, you have to get the ball past half within eight seconds. Uh, you've got to, uh, the ball has to be hiked. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Within a certain Snapped. amount of time. Snapped, exactly. And baseball should be no different. So, you know, I go to, I go to um, Toronto Raptors games in the off season or any basketball game, but mostly the Raptors. And I take the train in. I live maybe 25 minutes west of the city, and we have a really uh, efficient, in my opinion, or at least I'm familiar with it, efficiently run uh, train and metro system. And I live probably about an eight-minute walk to the train. The train takes me from my neighborhood right into the downtown core, which is uh, the downtown core um, just so happens to be where all the stadiums are. So I'll uh, take my train ride downtown get to get to the game exactly when tip off kicks off. And then <clears throat> I know that every basketball game is going to be done within a certain amount of time. And I know I'm catching that X o'clock um, um, uh, train just because of the way basketball runs their sport. There's, there's, there's a predictability to, um, to basketball, to all, uh, all other sports. Baseball, on the other hand, you don't know if you're going to be home after a 7, 10 p.m. game at, at 10, 15 p.m. or at 12, 15 a.m. And I think there's some goodness to that. There's a, there's a, a room, there's a, you know, there's an appeal to that. But ultimately, the average fan, I think, wants to be able to watch the evening news or prepare themselves for bed or what have you, fool around their phone, whatever the obligations they have, their children, what have you. And, you know, all of a sudden it's, it's 1130 midnight. And you just got done watching a four-hour and fifteen-minute game. I don't think we're serving our fans well, personally. That's just my take. I, 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 I get it's a hundred and fifty-year-old game, and it's been done this way for years. But today's market demands a more efficient product, and and I think that the changes to the game, specifically tied to time, I think will be good. The rest of the changes, I haven't been on the field. I like the bigger bases. Um. I like the shift adjustments just, just for the aesthetics, you know, um, there's an offside in hockey, uh, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a certain balance to the way football defenses are laid out. Uh, you can do whatever you want within a certain set of rules, um, in all sports and even, uh, even basketball made adjustments to their zone defense and man, man, uh, zone defense options. So, you know, uh, I, I think that's good. Also, it, it, I don't want to say it got ridiculous, but when there was, you know, when there was a, 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 a everybody, you know, you watch a Joey Gallo at bat, for example, circa 2021, 2022, he could hit a ball 115 miles an hour, which is a really hard struck ball. And it could, you know, it would typically one hop the, the right field wall. And you have a, a third baseman catching it, uh, uh, and, you know, uh, and throwing them out at first base sort of thing. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but 
I've seen not really. <laughs> I, I've, I, I've experienced top spinning a ball, hitting it hard, and seeing an, an infielder on the line and thinking to myself, what, what is this? This is not the swing that I'm chasing per se, but you're chasing a swing that has some forgiveness to it in that we're working inside of a diamond and you miss hit a ball and you want it to be inside of the fair territory. And now if you're a left-handed hitter specifically, and I, I have a left-handed hitting bias, but you hit it as hard as you possibly can and you miss hit it out front, it's an automatic out. It's an automatic out. And you th- you're thinking to yourself, all right, I've got two options. I can either carve the ball to the left side or I can try to shoot it over the fence. And the balls are a little livelier over the last five plus years. I'm going to give that a shot. Guys are pitching in such a way that doesn't allow you to really carve carve and hit the ball to the left side. I'm going to give that a shot. And then you start seeing some swings and misses. And obviously, there's going to be an increase in walks because that's correlated to home runs. So um, I think it's good. And I think that we're going to start. I don't. I, I can't predict. But I can speak for me as a hitter. I'm aware now that, okay, if I hit a liner up the middle and I mishit it, it might go through the infield. So I don't necessarily always have to chase hitting a ball over the fence or, or through the gap. I may be able to kind of gear down a little bit and just make contact and see where it goes. And I think you'll see more guys attempt that. There'll be more conversations about the art as opposed to the science of hitting. The, the, it's, you know, the laboratory of hitting, is, it's more of like, you know what, I might try to do this or choke up a little bit or, you know, gear down uh, a little bit. And I think that may, may lead to more balls in play. And I think that in my opinion, serves the fan, the average fan, and also makes a more appealing game for the average player. You know, we play de- we play defense and uh, these games at times can be so difficult because it's either strikeout, fly out or walk, strikeout, fly out, walk, Homer, strikeout, fly out, walk, Homer. And after a while, it's like, where, what can I play? You know, can I, can I, I've got a glove here. Can I play? So, yeah, I, I like the new rule changes. I think, I think it'll be good for us. Yeah. So, so far in this, uh, you know, a couple of weeks of spring training games, the average game time compared to past spring training games in the same window is about 20 minutes less. That's uh, not and enough. you mentioned about the reaction from players on the field. I've often like, I mean, you love baseball and, and when we've seen, especially relief pitchers, let's face it, 30, 40 seconds between pitches. I wonder what guys on the field are thinking, like, come on, let's go. Had there been times like that for you? Yeah, it, it becomes normal, uh, normalized. You right. normalize it. You know, you just a- adapt and, you know, you stay busy with chatting with an infielder or, or thinking about um, thinking about maybe your whatever. You've got you stay occupied with other things. But I like that we have to we have a, a more of a rhythm now too. Now I may be I may be frustrated at times with excuse me with the new with the new clock, but eventually I'll adjust to it and find my rhythm. That's the ultimate goal. So I think I, they I came out. I think they been, came, go ahead. I was just going to say I think they came out with some minor league study that said after about a month, almost everybody had had adapted to it. So. Right. About 90 percent of in that poll, the MLB presented that to us. And they said like 90 percent of the minor leaguers they talked to said they figured it out within that time. You are a hitter. Uh, you know, I think of you as being one of the hitters with some awareness of tempo. Uh, and along those lines, we've seen pitchers, Max Scherzer, most notably, you know, trying to establish a tempo. 
um, it, it does feel like that within a reasonable amount of time, the hitters will find that. Yes, of course. And okay. And I mean, for you, how long of an adjustment do you think that'll take to get used to that time, that time frame? I'm pretty confident that I'll, 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 I'll be within the, the time immediately, but there's a rhythm to it. And I may be, I, to, for me to get to, to a place where I don't have to be aware of the clock or the pitcher and I find my own rhythm, that may take the full month. I'm not really sure. Uh, I'll be able to answer that after I get, uh, you know, I, a bunch of at bats here uh, in the not too distant future. So, I feel generally that the pitch clock will work to some degree to the uh, to the pitchers. But I had a question for you along these lines. Okay, uh, but but I want to throw this at but you. I'm not too. sure. Yeah. Okay. I'm I do. Sure. I feel like that as we go through this, there's a chance that you will see a higher percentage of fastballs thrown because you think about relievers in recent years who throw, you know, 60% sliders, I think it's going to be harder for those guys to do that within that, you know, 15 seconds, 20 seconds. You buying that or no? Why? To recover between pitches. Do you think that there'll be a higher percentage of fastballs thrown with the game moving at a faster pace? I'd heard that rumor from the minor leagues, but I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'd heard that there was more strikes eventually being thrown in the minor leagues. And I'd heard there had been an intention on getting more contact. But I don't know if the major league level will allow that. So I, I can't answer that question. I think we saw an uptick in off-speed pitches over the last year. I believe that the breaking ball was like was more than it had been over the last bit over the last few years especially yep. with the with the increase in velocity over the last like six or seven years, guys started leaning in on their fastballs, their higher fastballs, their spinnier fastballs. Now, uh, if they want to go that, or last year, if I'm not mistaken, they, the trend was heading towards breaking balls. And if you think the clock is going to affect that and, and, and lead them to throwing more fastballs, you, I, we'll see because no one wants to get smashed here. So I'm not sure if pitchers are excited about I, I think everyone will figure out a way with their best stuff to be competitive. So uh, the rules related to the number of pickoff throws, what sort of impact do you think those are going to have? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'd imagine more, more base. Uh, I'd imagine more stolen base attempts, um, which is good. Plus the base, which is good. I've been watching some of these um, spring training games and game looks so much more exciting, you know, feel like running, and showing off how athletic, you know, it's funny. I I I check my Statcast page uh, a few times a year just to see where I'm fitting it, fitting in in terms of like how hitting the ball hard and some of the expected numbers. And my speed has been the exact same every year for the last like seven years, as long as they've been measured. I've been like twenty five point four, twenty five point six, twenty five point four every year. And last year, and every year, I ranked somewhere in the. 18th to 23rd percentile. So always around 20% roughly. And last year I was the exact same and I was 10th percentile. And to me, that's telling me that either, either <laughs> maybe the game's gotten a little bit faster. And if the game's getting faster, you've got a bunch of guys that uh, have a chance to steal bases and, and make the game more exciting. And again, I love, I think that the, the, unsp the, the, uh, 
the unspoken part about uh, the shift is you're going to see so many first to thirds that are just such a blast to watch in real time. You know, you get a ball in play and now all of a sudden the right fielder is trying to throw a base runner out at third base. There's going to be errors. There's going to be, you know, balls, you know, it, it just, I just feel like uh, we're going to get to see more running. And I think that'll be really fun for the average fan. When I was broadcasting last year and sitting up at the top, there were things that stood out to me about the game and both good and bad. And I, I, I watching the game and seeing like fast players show off or balls in play and great plays uh, non-home run plays where the put the 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 catcher goes first to home. These are very exciting plays, and I'm sitting up in the 500 section announcing the game, and I'm thinking to myself, we need that more of that. You know, the homers are fantastic, but these these specific moments in the game where you get to see running, you know, throwing, tagging, you know, you lose some of that. I think with the shift and. And then I think less guys were on base also. So I think that we'll get to see more sort of like baseball plays, traditional baseball plays. Yeah. And that's Theo Epstein has come out and talked about that's the discussion they had was trying to highlight the athleticism of the sport, see more running, you know, see more base. Oh yeah. During the off season. Base running is base running is also a skill. You get to, uh, you get to see an average runner, a below average runner show off, his skill. There's a plenty of athleticism, even with the average runners. So I've seen plenty of guys run efficient routes and make great slides and evade tags. And more of that is a good thing. Paul Goldschmidt, for example, great base runner. You know, yeah, there's plenty of, you know, Freddie Freeman's an excellent base runner. There's plenty of catching great base runners that, you know, don't get that aren't they're below average or average runners at best. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of that more balls in play. I think will be a good thing. So early in the offseason, what I heard from agents, what I heard from general managers was there was an incredible spike in interest in left-handed hitters in anticipation of the regulations against defensive shifts. You you mentioned, you know, you're left-handed hitter, you have left-handed hitter bias. How much of a difference do you think it's going to make for those guys for you? Well, I make the same, so it hasn't affected me uh, salary-wise, which is a bit of a bummer. <laughs> um uh, for those on guys, the field, on base production, oh, how much production. of a difference? I think it could make a big difference. Everybody that's come back to the clubhouse after their games has told me it's made an enormous difference. They feel like there's so much more space. They feel like they can miss hit a ball and still get a hit. You know, it, it's it, it's difficult to describe how hard it is to hit and square a ball up um, in at the major league level. But square a ball up in a specific direction. It is so hard to do. So, so hard to do. And um, I think that's the biggest reason why a lot of the guys went for the, um, went for the, the, you know, attempting more home runs. I know the ball was a factor, but when you, when you've got like, you know, scraps to play with, you're, you're thinking to yourself, you know what, why, why am I going to keep smashing the ball to the right fielder? And it's going to get picked up by the second baseman or the third baseman or shortstop or whomever's out there. I might as well take shots here. You know, I might as well take shots. If I hit 215 uh, and hit 30 plus home runs, I'm going to get rewarded. You know, they're going to walk me a bit more. And, you know, I'm going to get, I may hit, you know, 205, 220, 2 whatever, but I'm still going to, I'm still going to get a job. And there's no hits on the right side. So, you know, this is what they're paying me for. This is what's wh- what I can do, at least be productive. So um, 
yeah, I'm hopeful. So you are one of the best hitters of your generation. And I wanted to get your reaction to this uh, refrain that I've heard over the last five or six years a lot. When people would talk about defensive shifts, they'd say, just hit the ball the other way. <laughs> you know, me standing on the field next, standing next to, uh, you know, getting a chance to watch you guys play. I'm like, no, it's not that easy. Like guys are throwing 98, 100 miles an hour now, <laughs> you know, nasty stuff. Describe for how difficult is that to do on a regular basis? Well, there's two parts to it, in my opinion, and I'm not sure I'd love to get a take from some of the better left-handed hitters. The first thing is all, all, all we at almost all times are trying to groove a consistent swing, something that we can repeat. And it's you have to be a, a pretty darn good athlete to be able to change your approach in the middle of the bat or based on the defensive, uh, defensive situation or based on the pitcher matchup. And you can attempt it. But to actually execute on actually, you know, hitting the ball up the middle or left field on a line and then switch back to trying to pull the ball in the air, that's really, really, really difficult to do. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I can't think of anything to liken it to, but we're not, we're not exactly golfers here where we've got a bag full of clubs. Most of the time, you know, most of the time you're going to be at your very best when you're just driving the ball sort of thing, or maybe you're a good putter sort of thing. Maybe that's not a good comparison, but I think you get what I'm going, going for. The second part of it is you, you, you get, let's say in one game you get, I guess it would be, let's say you get 10 strikes in a game. And by the way, these guys are throwing harder than ever. And their styles are actually closer to us than they used to be. Higher is closer, excuse me, closer to us, cutter, slider, fastball. So it's it's closer to us. The strike zones tighten some. So the ball's closer again to us. Uh, the, a ball that's up, you have two choices, or at least I feel like I, a lot of hitters have two choices. You can either consistently attempt to hit that ball in the center of the field or left field, or you can catch it out front along with all the other pitches inside of that slider, cutter, middle fastball range and and pull it or center field or, or, or full pull it. And so going back to the first comment I made about consistency, if you're grooving a certain t- t- style of swing and you're being, and you're being pitched pretty consistently on balls that feel relatively close to you and you're a pretty good athlete, you have some power, which is by the way, part of the play, the players that are getting called up now typically have to hit home runs or at least over the last bit are more home run type guys. We don't see as many like line drive base hit type of guys. Uh, I don't feel like getting called, getting called up or having an opportunity to play because of again, the shifting and because of the value of the long ball uh, or team's value of both getting on base and the long ball. And so, um, I just, I just feel like um, all of those together lead to the average player just consistently attempting harder swings, more aggressive swings, more um, error-prone swings, but also with the, with the reward of doubles and homers and walks. And um, I think that it's, this is, that's this current generation. It may change in the future you know, if they make adjustments again with the most recent adjustments, the shift, the speed bases, uh, the, the, uh, pitch clock, maybe more fastballs, maybe more value on balls in play. Maybe they even change the strike zone or they change. They've already changed the ball a little bit, if I'm not mistaken. So all of these things may shift the game back towards, you know, a contact type of approach, but you still have the generation of players that were raised in the minor leagues 
trying to smash the ball, play, had success in the major league level, smashing the ball. The ball is still plenty good to hit. It's not like, it's not like this is a 19, you know, this is not a 19th century baseball. This ball still goes fine. Totally fine. Um, you just may not check swing a homer. I think I saw a highlight of that a bit ago, but I feel like get back to your question. Guys are building, trying to build consistent swings. And if you've only got a game's worth of strikes, 10, 12 strikes, if you attempt, you know, swings on, 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 on half of those, um, six swings, say you take six swings and all of them, all of them, you take shots on over the course of like a series or a week, you're going to have, you're going to uh, accumulate some, some, some pretty good swings on balls and, and likely put the ball and play hard for doubles or, or more. And over that course of the course of that, you know, 35, 40 plate appearances, you might tally a double or two, a home run or two, uh, you're a threat. So they're going to pitch around you a little bit, accumulate some walks. You may get a, a missed hit here and there, and you've got, you know, a 400 plus slug and you've got a 350 plus on base and, and teams pay for that. But the amount of work over the course of the, over those, over those 12 strikes to be able to like line a hit, line a hit, line a hit, line a hit, and accumulate that, that 750 OPS or whatever sort of thing. It's just so much harder to do. And going back to what, what I mentioned about guys have not trained that the league has not supported that teams haven't paid for that. The ball is not built that way. Pitching isn't really matched up for that. I just, I just feel like uh, it only makes sense to, to take shots, to take more shots. Maybe that'll change. You know, our best players are all the ones are the ones that smash the ball real quick for you. Where do you stand right now in terms of getting ready for this year? I'll be back soon. I'll be, I'll be playing in the not too distant future. I'm feeling really good. Okay, Joey. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cincinnati Reds. The Reds stripped their spending dramatically in 2022 with their opening day payroll reduced by about $40 million. And then they traded all-star pitcher Luis Castillo. Cincinnati finished the season with a record of 62 and 100. Newcomers. The Reds signed Will Myers to a one-year, $6 million deal and added catcher Kirk Casale to serve as a backup for Tyler Stevenson. Fault lines. The Reds have seemingly been following the modeling of other successful small market franchises like Cleveland and Tampa Bay and building what they hope will be a consistent stream of really good pitching. Hunter Green is the new ace. It's been announced he's going to start on opening day. Someone who struck out 164 hitters in 125 and two-thirds innings in 2022. Graham Ashcroft and Nick Lodolo have also shown great promise. And six foot six inch Brandon Williamson is on the horizon. Breakout star. This might not be the year that Ellie De La Cruz fully establishes himself in the big leagues, but he's on his way, an infield version of the multi-threat red star Eric Davis. Last year in the minors, Cruz hit 28 homers and stole 47 bases in 53 attempts as he reached double-A. The Baseball Tonight Podcast win projection. Sarah Lang says 65. Hembo says 65. I'll say 65. Dakota projects 68.1 wins. This is the numbers game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how are you doing this morning? 
I am doing great. I got to wake up early, see some Shohei Otani on a Thursday morning. So, uh, I mean, amazing. Worth w- waking up for baseball every time. So, and when I'm talking, you sound fully caffeinated. When you jumped on <laughs> uh, to the pod, it was like, yep, yeah, she she's full speed. It's like... Uh, <laughs> If you were a pitcher, you'd be working in your third inning, full lather, because you've been up for about <laughs> seven hours so far. Uh, tell me how you, what did, did you go to bed early last night or did you just go to bed at regular time at midnight and then got up at three o'clock? Uh, so it's funny you refer to midnight as regular time. For me, that would be early. I tried to go to bed early. I think I ended up going to bed around. 1.30 ish, maybe two, uh, after the first game that happened in Tokyo. And then after that, I woke up at a nice 4.57 a.m. alarm. Wow. Uh, yeah, so there's a crash coming later today, yes? <laughs> um, most likely. I did go back to bed uh, after the game, so kind of in and out. But uh, we'll see what happens. But it was very funny because I was thinking of the fact of, hey, this is when Buster gets up. So, you know, there are people who do this every day. <laughs> All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 41. So speaking of the World Baseball Classic, the U.S. will play its first game this weekend on Saturday. And Adam Wainwright has been named that game one starter. He will be 41 years and 193 days old on Saturday. That will make him the fourth oldest pitcher to start a World Baseball Classic game. The only guys older than him to start a WBC game were Roger Clemens twice in 2006 and Netherlands great Rob Cordemans in 2017. Number two. Number two is seven. So the World Baseball Classic is now in its fifth iteration. So we have enough of a sample size to talk about all-time leaders. And Alfredo Despagne of Cuba is the all-time home run leader with seven. And then someone that we're very familiar with here in the U.S., Miguel Cabrera, has six, which is tied for second most. Number one. Number one is five. So speaking of Mickey, he and Oliver Perez, if either both of them, whenever they get into a game during this World Baseball Classic, they will be the only players to participate in all five World Baseball Classics. Miguel Cabrera, of course, on the team Venezuela roster. Oliver Perez is in the designated pitcher pool. So he isn't active for the first round, but if Mexico advances, he would be likely to pitch. All right. So in the game that you referenced this morning, getting up to watch Shohei Otani, he threw four scoreless innings. His fastball was up to, what, 101 miles an hour, hitting 100, 101 miles per hour. Uh, his at-bats were excellent, you know, wind up driving in two runs with a double, his plate appearance, as you can tell, he's in command of the strike zone. Sarah, it just feels like he's going to have this unbelievable season. And we know that nobody in baseball can replicate what he does on the field. I think it's safe to say, with all due respect to Aaron Judge, in terms of marketability, nobody can match what he can do off the field. 
So as we sit here in March, I'd like a prediction from you about what the total guaranteed dollars are going to be in the contract that he gets in the upcoming offseason. Because I, I watch a game like today and see the attention on him and see how well he's responding to it. And knowing that if there's one year in Shohei Otani's life where, it, I mean, you go all in and do in having as much production this year as being as great as you could possibly be, because this is going to shape the biggest contract in the history of sports, professional sports in the United States. It, it's like that, uh, you know, that tote board that you had on the national debt. It just goes up and up and up and up. So give me a number where you think that's going to land. Oh, my goodness. So. You know, uh, Stephen Nelson, who's broadcasting the uh, that poll from Tokyo, said something early on in the broadcast. He said that Otani has become and is the most recognizable individual in baseball. And I hadn't really thought about it in that way because often there are questions people know enough about Mike Trout and you can go back to before him, people recognizing maybe Poppy and Jeter, but not other players. It's kind of an ongoing conversation with baseball. And I think I'm so captivated by Otani that I hadn't taken a step back and thought about it in that context. But he is that player that NBA players are tweeting about, NFL players are aware of. And I think people all over the world are so aware of him. I mean, during the first game in Tokyo, on the wide shot, you could see there was a banner with Otani on it. During a game, he wasn't even playing in. I mean, that has how much marketability he has, to your point. I've been saying it will start with at least a five, and I agree with you that after seeing one game and everything that he is sort of taking on with the World Baseball Classic, seeing that he's already opening day ready. Is the number starting with a six now? I mean, are we talking about something like 600 million? I mean, it is so hard to even process these numbers, but I I think that's the answer. It will be a number far above anything we've ever seen before and completely deservedly so. Yeah. Mike Trout, I think with value, his contract's what, 429 and a half million or something like that. Uh, and that was like three, four years ago. Mm -hmm. If I am, you know, Otani's agent and given the where, you know, you're in the, or still relatively early in the labor agreements, we saw that the salary number spike enormously for the elite players during the course of this offseason. Uh, let's say he comes off uh, what I think is going to be one of the greatest seasons we've ever seen from any player production, you know, hitting and pitching. I, I mean, I'm laughing at a contract offer that starts at five, like 500. Yeah. I, I think 500, it's not even close. And I'm saying to the Dodgers, I'm saying to the Mets, um, look, that's just not going to get it done if that's where they come in. And that's why I do I, you know, think it's going to start with a six. And quite frankly, it wouldn't shock me if, if it started with a seven in terms of what his overall value is potentially to uh, a franchise, you know, in terms of the amount of money that he can make someone like Steve Cohen or the Guggenheim group, you know, the owners of the Dodgers, I I think it's going to take our breath away when we see the contract. 
Absolutely. I mean, he takes our breath away at the plate on the mound, and I think the number absolutely well. But as you said, I mean, it isn't just everything he does. It is that value he brings. The fact that you people sitting in Tokyo, thousands and thousands of miles from Angel Stadium, in not just Otani t-shirts, not just Angel's gear, but in t-shirts that I recognize that were giveaways, which means those people went to a game, they traveled. I mean, there was so much red in the stands, and that is sort of that signal that it isn't just about what he's doing on the field, but it's everything off the field. I mean, those people could have been in Team Japan, and they were, there were plenty of people, but the amount of red just tells you what he has done for the Los Angeles Angels over the course, you know, since 2018. Imagine them all in Dodger Blue or Mets colors, Yankees, whatever team it may be. He is going to bring in so much money. But again, at the end of the day, he is also an MVP caliber player year in and year out at this point. Boy, and the perception of him and, you know, and his comfort level on a big stage has changed so much. I remember conversations with executives after he agreed to sign with the Angels, which, you know, they're not the biggest stage. They're not the Dodgers. They're not the Yankees. Uh, you know, and he, and he could have picked any team when he came here. They kind of viewed that as, okay, boy, is this is this guy someone who wants to hide behind Mike Trout? Um, and now, now you watch him play and you talk about comfort level. It feels like his heart rate is about 55 in these big moments. He he always seems to have so much fun. And to see other players today in that WBC game, it just jumped out at me like everyone wants to talk to him. You know, players, when he got to second base today, the umpire who was at second base was constantly talking with him like, and that's going to be the moment for that umpire. Hey, I remember when I talked to the greatest player in the world, Shohei Otani, and that's has value. Uh, and, and I think players or teams are going to recognize that owners are going to recognize that and he's going to get paid for it. Sarah, thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Valster. All aboard. It's the Ravi train with Carl Ravage. Carl Ravage, play-by-play man on Sunday Night Baseball and currently play-by-play man in the SEC tournament. Carl, thanks for delivering the Commodores into the next round over LSU. (laughs) Yeah, I I wish that I had some impact to help you out. I uh, was just an innocent viewer of the game last night, but uh, they got a tough game against Kentucky. Your boy Stackhouse has done a great job there. And there's a legitimate chance that they can beat Kentucky. It's a good conference this year. It's not great, but Vanderbilt's improvement and others' improvements have made it a very competitive environment here. And being back in Nashville, your college town, man, I'm telling you, if you lay down some money in a condominium right now and there are a million of them being built, I think in 10 years you could you could return a profit on them. This city is electric. Yeah, and and you could get a profit on that by selling it to a future major leaguer, right? Yes, I would I would agree. And they're building a new NFL stadium. Yeah, and they got hockey. It, it it has everything you'd want. But I'm telling you, you know, there are cranes building cranes everywhere, and as you know, it's been that way for about ten years. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have so many friends in, who live in Nashville are telling me about the housing prices and the, yes. the taxes and everything's just skyrocketing because uh, everyone's moving to Nashville. All right. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, the Yankees, uh, Brian Cashman announces that Carlos Rodon has an elbow issue. Um, you know, I talked to sources last night who basically were telling me, look, uh, you know, he wanted to continue. Like, he didn't feel like that this was this big of a deal, but they did the imaging. You had a minor strain and they feel like that there's a chance he's going to pitch early in the air and be back. When you heard about this, uh, what was your what were your thoughts? What kind of language is allowed on the podcast? Is it are we, are we a clean sort of edition of the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Joey Votto. When we talked to him, when I mentioned the a bastard slider, I could see him blanch. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I would say that, you know, it was, oh, followed by an expletive. Like, I, look, I appreciate I mean, that's who Carlos Rodon is. He, he's always going to want to sort of fight through things. And if there's a if there's a net that he could push up against and have it rip, he would do that. If he could throw it through a, a wall when he was doing that in his home with his wife rehabbing, um, he would do that. The idea that the player wants to push through it and they're using the term mild, look, I hope that's the case, but I'm I'm certainly sitting here thinking uh, I, I don't necessarily believe that until I see it. Many, I mean, you tell me the number of pitcher injuries that have been deemed minor that end up costing a lot more time and eventually end up, you know, worst case scenario in surgery. Uh, that's the last thing I'd want for Rodon, Cashman, Boone, the Yankees, Major League Baseball. But uh, I, I'm not going to sit here and be optimistic about somebody describing something as mild when it has to do with the pitcher's arm. I, I'm just not. And in part because this is now the second hit for the <clears throat> Yankees rotation. Yeah. You know, Frankie yeah. Montas, uh, he may miss the whole year. We don't know. He may b- throw a few innings, but the Yankees aren't counting for uh, on uh, him for anything. And that, to me, is the you know potential underbelly of the Yankees, uh, the injuries, the health of their mm-hmm. rotation. And so we'll see how that uh, how that progresses. We'll get more information, I'm sure, when he picks up a ball again in the next seven to ten days and tries to throw. I did want to mention your man, Michael King. How great is it <laughs> that he's come back this spring? Because I got to tell you. When I and I think you and I actually talked about this when I heard about the nature of his injury he suffered last year, it made me cringe because a broken yeah. bone and a throwing arm always, yeah. you know, historically, you and I both know examples of this, doesn't always go right. So to see him back on the mound and throwing great, it's so hardening. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I, you know, again, just given as we've discussed on the podcast, you know, my history with his dad and and when he was born and all of those things, um, you know, you, you tend to forget that he was, I think, arguably, when he was right, the best reliever in the league, if not yeah. all of baseball. I mean, you took that weapon out of the Yankees bullpen last year, along with other injuries, but he was as effective a reliever as there was in the game. You know, he had an immaculate inning. He would come in and face three guys and strike them all out. He would sometimes be extended and he'd get five of the six guys in a row, whatever it was. Um, you know, in, in, in just talking with people who are very close to him, the recovery was going very well. But like everybody with injuries, you're, you realize, just as we talked about with the Yankees, how fragile all of this stuff is. You can build 
the the perfect team, but they're not built out of uh, you know cement and mortar. They're humans and mortal, and as a result, these types of injuries to the Yankees that they're now dealing with, and Michael King last year can happen, but. The fact that they have him back, and this was a kid that was a starter in college, you know, no idea, you know, the Yankees look at him as an incredibly valuable weapon to come out of the bullpen and off an injury. They're not likely to move him to a starting position, but, that, you know, like every, like most pitchers, that's that's what he'd like to do. I mean, who wouldn't as a pitcher in baseball? But, yes, the idea that he's back 100% heartened by it and he gives them as good a bullpen as there is in baseball. Yeah, maybe uh, going into the future, they'll look at him as a potential starter right. for this year. Aaron Boone mentioned to reporters that, you know, they're looking at a multi-inning role. You know, that right. guy, uh, you know, back in the day, Sparky Lyle, you know, would come in, the Raleigh yep. Fingers, yep. two and a third. That's uh, that's what Michael King was giving him this year or last year. David Fitzgerald sends in a bleacher tweet. Uh, you'll appreciate this. He asks, what is going on with the Red Sox? I was going into the season expecting nothing. Should I still be a typical pessimistic Sox fan? Because nobody can beat the Red Sox, Carl. You know, Alex, I think if you, I, I have no idea. Um, and it's probably something simple to look up. But Alex Coro's teams, I, I feels like traditionally in spring and uh, spring training games, they win. I, I don't know why. I don't think it's because he's playing his regulars more often but they, they feel like they tend to win spring training games. And, you know, look at all the bad news coming out of the Yankees camp. There, there hasn't been a ton of that coming out of the Red Sox camp. And we talk about pitching staff, certainly starting staffs, that are uh, in danger of not being able to take the ball every time. The Red Sox will be the first team you'd present and say, Look at the names, and if this was 2015 and you had Paxton and Sale and Kluber, uh, yeah, they, they, they'd they have a real, really good team uh, with really good arms, but it's 2023. Things have gone well for them. I don't think Alex Cora ever, you know, as a manager, puts a team out there that won't give it 100%, but do I get off the pessimistic bandwagon that the Bleacher tweet uh, sent in. Uh, it, look, baseball is about hope and faith. You, you should always have that as a fan. But I think realistically, you know, the Red Sox are, are not a team that's going to win 95 games. Doesn't mean they could surprise us, but I would probably still lean on the side of pessimism and I would optimism, but also put nothing past, you know, the value of Alex Cora and the chemistry and all the things that you need intangibly to win. The question is, do they have the, the players that are good enough to do it? Yeah, I told you the story last week of one of my conversations with Rafael Devers when yes. he asked me, you know, how good do you think we'll be? And I said, I don't think it'll be very good, but the most important thing this year is that you guys come together. Uh, you know, I, put, I folded my fingers together, and that way I said that was the way it was in 18. That's the way it was in 2021. And my feeling was they were in a better place emotionally when we were around them last week, Carl. You know? I agree, you just, yeah. Yeah, you just felt like, as opposed to last year when they had just, I'm sure the players just heard about the Bogarts offer, which was embarrassing. One third of what he eventually signed for with the Padres. Uh, you know, Trevor Story had just signed. A lot of uncertainty among the players about who was coming, who was going. It just, there is a different feel around that team. Before you go, how cool is it to see Shohei Otani? Just put on a show every day. It feels like that this is a precursor for one of the most amazing seasons we're ever going to see from any player. 
I hope so. I, you know, again, the WBC is a really, really uh, phenomenal, unique event. And when you can see the enthusiasm, and I watched the game this morning uh, from the fans over there, which we were exposed to during our Korean baseball exercise, and to see him high fiving, uh, you know, you Darvish and being on the same team, and uh, the Red Sox uh, sending their 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 new you know in, investment to that team. Uh, and they're tipping their caps to each other, et cetera. It, it's, it's very cool. I, I just don't – I don't know that it translates to Major League Baseball because in Major League Baseball, to me, it feels like that guy's going to kill us if we pitch to him. Uh, I know we can't prevent what he does on the mound, but you got to pitch him carefully. He, he's so dynamic. He's such a, a unique player. He is the most well-rounded player on the planet and, and may go down in history as the most well-rounded baseball player we've ever seen. So the WBC stage, to me, if this ends with Team Japan maybe facing the United States, then sign me up all day, all night, every day, all year. Like I'm in on that. And one guy who uh, is off to a great start in the WBC is Lars Nudbar, who you and I talked to before he took off. Uh, We were in the the Cardinals camp. Boy, this looks like the perfect launch point for a young player, Carl, because he's having so much fun, intense at-bats, intense atmosphere. All the other Japan players are doing the grind the pepper thing that he showed them. It's pretty cool and, you know, made a great catch in the game that was played uh, this morning. So I, I could see Lars Nupar absolutely uh, taking off from this event. Look, I, there's a lot of Cardinals that I think are prepared yes. to take off. I mean, that's the one thing that, that being with the Cardinals and doing their game in spring, they're, they're not all the same player, but many of them are of the same age and seem to have the same potential, you know, this, which is sort of the sky. Um, Newt Barr is one of the exciting players as, as is Donovan, as is Gorman, as is Edmund. like they're, the, the names Jordan go Walker. on and on. <laughs> exactly. Jordan Walker. I mean, that's the beauty of the Cardinals right now. And it's great to see Newt Barr. Like the last thing you'd say about the WBC and somebody like Newt Barr performing or Otani going over to Korea and performing, uh, the team that the United States has built, which is better than any all-star team that's ever been put together offensively, is is the universal language of this sport. It, it's such a reminder that you can play this across the globe and the number of people that would be interested in attending the games, in in having a, a real sincere, authentic interest in the games and the players, to me, it, is, it blows away every other sport and the World Baseball Classic, like the Little League World Series, reminds us that baseball is still, it may not be the current national pastime. It is, to me, the world's pastime, and I'm sure soccer people will put up a fight against that, and, and that may be a legitimate one. But relative to football, relative to basketball, baseball still is the one that resonates to me. And I know soccer is similar, but baseball shines when the WBC is played. All right, Ravi. Uh, have fun, and I will talk to you next week. Hi, buddy. See you guys. Thanks. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease. Plus, 
It treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Mike Greenberg is the host of Get Up and the radio show that he does for ESPN from 10 to 12. And, of course, everybody knows right now, Greeny, you are hanging on the edge as you wait for word about whether or not Aaron Rodgers is going to join your beloved Jets. So I'm hoping that this will be a minor distraction for you just to, you know, to take you away from all that drama. Uh, as well, you I mean, that. I spent yesterday in a Broadway theater for an hour and 45 minutes with no cellular ability. Um, you know, Buster, it's a weird feeling. Like there are very few times in life when you know that your life is about to change as you know it completely. Uh, some of them you get a lot of heads up and warning for. Like, you know, the birth of your children is nine months in the making. But yesterday, as I turned my phone on at the end of this show, which was called The Wanderers, and I liked very much, by the way, as I sat there and watched my emails and texts start to load, I realized I might, my entire life as I know it might be about to change. And that's a weird way to feel. And then my first observation was I didn't have 150 texts waiting for me. So I knew that nothing had happened. And sure enough, nothing has. So Yes, I'm delighted to talk about baseball or anything else to get my mind off of Aaron Rodgers. All right. And what I want to talk to you about uh, are the new rules. Uh, last week, our our friend and mutual friend and producer, Pete McConville, reached out. He said, hey, Greeny wants to have you on to talk about the new rules. And then as we went through the segment, I was like, Greeny has very strong opinions about what's happening on the field and the change in baseball. It's pivotal in the history of the sport. You as a fan, what do you think? Well, so, so there are obviously three significant changes in the sport right now. Let's, let's put aside the shift and the size of the bases. Let, let, let's just deal in the pitch clock because while let's just, I'm, I'm not even going to prejudice the conversation by, by, by giving an equivocation. Let's just talk about that. I don't understand anyone who doesn't like it. Like I, I need it explained to me what you don't like about it. The, and, and this is my firm belief that if the pitch clock were kept a secret, meaning if the pitchers knew it and the batters knew it, but the traditionalist fan who was just looking for something to complain about didn't know the pitch clock existed and only watched a game in which the pitches were coming more quickly, in which every batter after every pitch, including those that he takes for a ball 
and where his bat has not moved one iota from his shoulder, doesn't step out and readjust everything he's wearing, and by that I mean literally everything, then <laughs> that fan would say, oh, terrific game today. What a good ball game today. What a great season this has been so far. Those same fans who are complaining about it would actually love it. They should be the first ones in line to say this was a needed change in baseball because the traditionalist will remember by definition that this is what the game used to look like. And I think they would agree with me in saying it's what the game should look like. It doesn't solve every problem that we've been talking about. And look, I am a traditionalist. I'm 55 years old. I'm not 25 years old. I remember baseball in the 70s and the 80s. And yes, there were things about it, as is the case with all sports, that I liked better then. But this particular change is actually taking us back to that. So I think that there are there is a segment of baseball fan out there that just has it in for Rob Manfred, doesn't like him. I think he will... To some degree, he is still living with one badly chosen sentence when he called the championship trophy a, a, a piece of metal. And he's, he's sort of still living that down. It was at the end of the day, it was just a poor choice of words. But people now who want to find things to complain about are just looking for a reason to be critical, wherein in reality... This change is an outstanding one. It is a great idea, and it will definitively make the game better, in particular for the fans who are complaining about it the most. You explained it in such a great way, because as you were talking, I was thinking back to those games that you and I have seen where Greg Maddox was pitching, and he's working fast, and he's throwing strikes, and Mark Burley of the White Sox famously worked very fast, Roy Halladay worked very fast. What was the universal reaction at the end of those games? Yeah, everyone Every loved time. it. Yeah, everyone loved it. And everyone loved them for it. And in the same way, what was the universal reaction every time Steve Traxel the strolled yes. out to the mound and others like him? And look, I, I don't mean this to be critical. The people I don't mind having complaints about it are the players. Because I get it. This is my livelihood. And if you're changing, they should. They they will be they will adapt because that's what players in all sports do they adapt to changes in the rules um but it will unquestionably have a negative impact on some of them for whatever reason and i i totally sympathize with them i'll give you um a comparison to that there is a, a a golfer named keegan bradley who won a major championship i want to say 10 or 11 years ago and if you watch him hit a golf ball, people who really know golf will tell you that tee to green there, Keegan Bradley had a chance to become the next superstar in the sport. And right around that time, they made a very significant change in golf. One far more impactful to the, the players playing than anything they've done in baseball this year. And that is that they outlawed the anchored putters. That was the way he putted. And his putting was so diminished as a result of that, that he's never had the career. He remains a good player and a well-known player. He's now more known than anything for being Michael Jordan's, you know, best buddy, but it completely changed the trajectory of his career. He is a guy, I think it is safe to say might have won multiple majors and, and sort of had a different career than the one that he's had. And so I understand that even if, 
we think it is a change that was made that was for the betterment of the sport, a player like him having a complaint, I don't have an issue with. So if there are, whether they be offensive players or pitchers, I don't have a problem with players saying, I don't like this. This makes me uncomfortable. I feel like it's going to have a detrimental impact on me because that's one person and that's his entire career and his entire livelihood. It is the fans that I take great umbrage with as they complain about this. Your kids and my kids are about the same age. Uh, and, and as this discussion began, you know, I'm watching my son who's 18 now. He's a freshman in college. And, you know, and I've related on the podcast before how I had conversations with him. Hey, do you want to watch the Braves? And my son is crazy about sports. And he's like, no, it's too slow. No, too slow. And you know what he's saying to me this spring, Greeny? I can't wait to watch it. Like he's excited because if you can reduce the fat out of the game by 20%, have the same number of outs, have the same number of innings, there's a generation of fans that's going to be all in. And I'm, I'm wondering if you're kind of, your sense, and I don't know if your kids are, you know, wildly into baseball, but knowing the rhythm, the, you know, the, how fast they go through their days, uh, if that's your sense too about young fans. Yes, I, I hope so. You know, both of my kids are off in college right now, and this is not a conversation that I've had with them in the last few weeks, but I would say that, this will definitely be a step in that direction. I'll give you the inverse of that story, which is that when my kids were little, I used to take them to Yankee Stadium a lot and we would go to games. And there was a time, there was a moment in time when watching the Yankees was like watching an all-star team. Uh, right. You'll remember what I'm talking about, right? I mean, it would be it, the, 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 the batting order. It was ridiculous. Rodriguez, um, I mean, was Alex Rodriguez and, and Alex, Jeter right. and Gary Sheffield and, and that group. I think it was after this would have been after Sheffield. This this was this would have been, but I mean it would have been Posada and um, it, I think it was this Giambi. would be before Teixeira got there. It was Giambi and uh, who was the outfielder they brought up? Who everybody loved, my kids loved, but whatever. I don't know why I'm having trouble remembering who was in the lineup. This would have been two thousand. No, no, this would have been Teixeira. They they got those guys in 09. So this would have been Teixeira. It would have been. Um, uh, uh, Robinson Cano, it would have been, you know, that, that group. And the kids loved going to those games. But I can also tell you that both of them, even at that age, spent a lot of time on their phones or what substituted for their phones at the time, which was they didn't have, they weren't old enough to have actual phones, but whatever those play things they used to hold in their hands right. were PS4s or whatever they were called. Um, and they would be doing that stuff. And so I remember at first I would tell them, come on, we're not playing with that stuff today. We're watching the game. And then, you know, there's a pitch and we're waiting and there's a pitch and we're waiting. And finally I said, all right, guys, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead and, and do whatever you want to do. I can't try and pretend that this is so compelling that we need to be glued to every second of it. This will definitely be a step in that direction. Look, you can't, you cannot fundamentally change what the sport is. And that, that that's just the reality of it. Like football has done everything it can to make the game less dangerous, right? But fundamentally, football, playing football is never not going to be a dangerous endeavor. You can go, you can make it as safe as you can reasonably make it. But at some point, if it is going to be football, it is going to be a, a place where people are going to get hurt and sometimes seriously. And we all have to accept that. Um, I commend them for making the changes that they have. Baseball is not going to be the kind of action-packed experience 
that basketball is or football is or hockey is. There's no way to make it that. That's not what the game was designed to be. It's not what the game is. I commend them for trying to make it as to make it as much of that as they can without fundamentally changing the character of the sport, which I don't think they have done with this. Um, and I think that that is the reality of it. You, you, you're not trying, you're never going to make baseball into basketball where there's a, a basket made every 20 seconds or whatever it is. That's just not the reality of that sport. Um, but you can certainly make it more watchable for all people than it has become. And that's what I think this has done. So you'll appreciate this because you know Tim Kirkchen so well. Uh, the first exhibition game that we did on air, uh, he was there in person. He was not part of the broadcast, but after that game, he told me with the pitch clock and, and seeing a game with the pitch clock for the first time at the big league level, he said, I couldn't take my eyes off it. I had to watch every pitch in a way that I haven't in years and it took him aback. And I think that's going to be the experience of a lot of people. So here's what I've had said to me, Buster. I've had some people say to me that they should, we should. I don't know. This probably wouldn't be a network decision. It would be a an MLB decision. Maybe it would be something that was decided jointly. That we should at least consider not showing the pitch clock. Um, like the players would see it. But that it would be. And my reaction to that has been what are we doing here? Like, like, you know, we, we show the, we show the clock in every other sport and it hasn't been a detriment to it. Like um, when, when a quarterback, like there's nothing in, in football more intriguing than when there's like four seconds on the play clock, three seconds, are they going to get the snap off? Are they going to get the playoff? Like I want to see it. And, and somehow baseball fans are telling me, you know, if they just didn't have the clock up there, then maybe it wouldn't bother me so much. What the hell are you talking about? Like, what about the clock up there is bothering people? I, I just felt I wanted to get your perspective on that because you're a part of the broadcast itself. So that's sort of within your milieu. Yeah, Greeny, there are people at Major League Baseball who do not want the clock to be shown during the broadcast. And I personally, you know, I first heard that. I'm like, what are you out of your mind? That's that's the biggest change in the sport. It dictates everything that a viewer is seeing in front of them. Pitcher, the batter. How could you possibly not show the pitch clock? Of course mm-hmm. you need to. And to your point, you know, as the in the NBA, when the shot clock gets under five seconds, we see that. Uh, you know, as the play clock goes down the NFL, you see that. You could have game-changing plays based on that clock. You have to show it. I think if you're running a broadcast, you have to show it. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, unless they tell you, you can't. And and, and I, I don't know who, how they could tell you they can't. I, I don't. These are meetings that I don't get invited to. But but I'm glad to hear that you've heard it also, because I'm, I'm not the only person who has heard people suggest that. And I don't mean to say I've heard it from people inside the sport. I've heard it from fans. And uh, and, and again, I, I just there's just some look. It is both baseball's blessing and curse. That people feel about it so they feel so defensive of it they feel so protective of it it's something that is that is somehow even the people i think who who prefer basketball or football in this day and age feel more personally i shouldn't say they feel more personally connected to baseball there's something about it that it when it gets changed it bothers them much much more um i mean they change they make major 
fundamental changes to football and basketball all the time. And I hear nothing. I hear nothing about it. And when they make even the smallest change to Major League Baseball, people uh, are mortally offended. And I think on some level, that's a good thing. I, I think that is a demonstration of just how important and how differently important the sport is for some people in their lives. But um, this is one that I, I think I think people are they're just searching. I, I think they're looking for reasons to complain um, rather than having an actual complaint. The tweet that I got last week that was a perfect example of that was a fan tweeted out that the the choice of 20 seconds uh, in the pitch clock with runners on base, 15 seconds, no runners on base. That's so subjective. And I responded, everything is subjective in professional sports. It's a made up right. game. Right. right. Exactly. So, so you, what you could tweet back to that person is, you know, at some point they decided that the pitcher is going to be 60 feet and six right. inches exactly. away from home plate. That what could be more subjective than that? It's not 60 feet. It's not 61 feet. It's 60 feet and six inches away from home plate. So, again, the rim is 10 feet. There right. are 11 we, players on his side in the NFL. You know what it's I do wonder about up. that? You know, when I get mad, I, I frequently, because you know how much I love golf, frequently while I'm playing golf, and you'll know exactly when I say this, I have been known to say, who the hell decided the cup was going to be this small? Like, why <laughs> did we decide the hole had to be this small? We only think that that's the way it has to be, because that's the way that it has always been. But the truth is, the game would be much more fun, <laughs> much, much, much less infuriating if the cup was like the size of a dinner plate instead of basically the size of a, glorif a glorified shot glass. Um, and, and, but yet that was someone's you know, subjective decision, and we live with the consequences, and that's what this is too. I think you're 100% right that by the end of the year, that I think even the traditionalists, are going to understand that the you know why the product is improved by these rules. All right, Granny, good luck uh, with the pursuit of Aaron Rodgers. All right, I'm doing everything I can. Thank you, Buster. It's always a pleasure. I'll see you soon. Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world, or you can go to his website, toddradom.com. Todd, how you doing? I'm doing well, Buster. I'm so excited to be here today. Yeah, and it's and that is in part because the great unveiling of this year's theme. You know, every year in recent uh, years, you picked out one particular theme that uh, you know affords you the opportunity to go through some history and present uh, you know some elements about a ballpark, about a uniform, maybe about a cap, uh, and we get such great feedback from our listeners about the way you dig into history. So what do you got for this year? Well, Buster, uh, based on the suggestion of, of uh, a number, I would say, of listeners, this year we're going to take a look at what I'm calling forgotten fields. So we're going to look at ballparks of the past. Uh, we're going to spread this out throughout various fan bases. So it's not just going to be the Fenways and Wrigley's of the field. As a matter of fact, neither of those will be in it because we're talking about ballparks of the past. Uh, it's a great topic, and um, I think we're going to keep this rolling all season long with interest, and we're going to bounce between the old, the new, and as I keep saying, the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
So here, just to give everyone an idea of Todd's level of interest in this topic, we hadn't actually talked about this year's theme. And so I asked Todd uh, in a conversation we had with Sarah and with Taylor, hey, what are you thinking for this year? And and he gave this concept and he was like, and I already have 20,000 words written. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You know, my spring training buster that takes place in January, maybe early February with some research into the topic. I've got stacks of books over here. I've got multiple tabs open. I have you know ballpark inspiration all around me here in my office. So uh, once I thought that this was going to be the thing, and let's face it, we've done this enough years, I am just diving right into the deepest end of the pool over here. But having said that, we're not going to talk about uh, Bank One Ballpark Chase because the deepest end of the pool might be in the outfield, but that's another topic for another day. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we sent out a poll earlier this week giving uh, listeners, uh, followers on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, the opportunity to shape your choice for this week. And it was overwhelming what you're going to lead uh, Forgotten Fields with, Todd. Yeah, it was a landslide buster. So today we're going to talk about Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. Buster, is there any ballpark in the history of baseball that's been written about more than Brooklyn's Ebbets Field? Home to the Brooklyn Dodgers from 1913 until they departed for L.A. after the 1957 season, Ebbets Field has been celebrated, mourned over, and practically obsessed about since it fell to the wrecking ball in 1960. The Mets' current ballpark, City Field, is a direct descendant of Ebbets Field, with its arched exterior, canopied entrance, and main rotunda directly drawn from its Brooklyn ancestor. The Dodgers spent 45 seasons in Ebbets Field and have played at their current home, Dodger Stadium, for far, far longer, but the romance and lore of Ebbets is intrinsically tied into the history of baseball in the 20th century. Ebbets Field was built on the site of what was described as, quote, a malodorous four-and-a-half-acre slum in the borough's Flatbush section. In its first MLB game took place on April 9th, 1913, a loss to the Philadelphia Phillies, but what Ebbets represents goes well beyond the box score. Fans entered the ballpark via an elegant 80-foot-wide, 27-foot-high rotunda made of Italian marble. 14 ornately decorated ticket booths encircled the area, which was topped off by a chandelier that was composed of 12 baseball bat arms holding 12 baseball-shaped globes. Its footprint was almost exactly square, and those dimensions came to define the fact that Ebbets was, at heart, a true neighborhood ballpark where the fans were always closely tied to the game. The ballpark was expanded in the 20s and 30s, at which time it took on the form that served as home to the Boys of Summer, Brooklyn's legendary clubs of the post-World War II era. On April 15, 1947, Jackie Robinson stepped onto the Ebbets infield and made history as the first African-American player in modern Major League Baseball. His arrival coincided with one of the most storied eras ever, as the club won six pennants over the next 10 years, topped off by the franchise's first World Series championship in 1955. By the late 40s and early 50s, the neighborhood around Ebbets Field began to decline. The ballpark itself was becoming structurally unsound, hampered by bad plumbing, narrow aisles, a lack of parking, and its small capacity. Dodgers owner Walter O'Malley moved seven home games to Jersey City in 1956 
and he sold Ebbets to a local real estate developer for $3 million the same year. O'Malley leaned hard on New York City officials to help him finance and build a new modern stadium for the club, but they would not play ball. On May 28, 1957, National League owners voted unanimously to allow the Dodgers to move to L.A., along with a shift of the New York Giants to San Francisco. This meant that New York would be without National League Baseball for the first time since 1882. A sparse crowd of 6,702 fans attended the final game at Ebbets Field on September 24, 1957. It was a 2-0 win over the Pittsburgh Pirates. The ballpark hung on for a few years, hosting college baseball and other events. Finally, on February 23, 1960, the wrecking ball descended on Ebbets. The same wrecking ball painted to resemble a baseball was used to demolish the polo grounds four years mm. later. Wow. There is an Ebbetsfield relic two miles north of its former location, right up Flatbush Avenue at Barclays Center, the home of the NBA's Brooklyn Nets. You can go there and you can see the center field flagpole from Ebbets Field. Have a look. Imagine the boys of summer and all the legendary Dodgers fans who cheered them on and think about the most celebrated ballpark of them all, Ebbets Field, which is this season's first forgotten field. So the the answer to my question I'm going to ask you every week with these forgotten fields, I, I think I mean, you already presented the moment uh, that I'm going to that uh, I think is the obvious choice here. But I was going to ask you every week, uh, which game would you wish do you wish that you would have attended in these forgotten fields? OK, so yeah. in Ebbets Field, in the history of Ebbets Field, what would be the must have game that if you could go back in time that you would want to see? Well, the Dodgers won their only World Series championship in Brooklyn on the road at Yankee Stadium, just a few miles away. So, you know, that would be the obvious choice if it were there. But I guess you go back to the very uh, opening game. And in the interest of brevity, Buster, I left out some details. The very first game at Ebbets Field, which I talked about in 1913, somebody forgot the keys. And somebody forgot a flag for that center field flagpole that I just uh, referenced. So imagining... Ebbets Field, you see these photos from 1913, this pastoral setting, no buildings around it. It's hard to imagine. And certainly we're going to talk about this all season long. But, um, you know, this would be one of those ballparks which was was uh, destroyed between before you and I were both born. Would have been something to have attended a game there. Yeah. And for me, uh, Jackie Robinson's first game, I can't imagine you know the the response there and the feeling in the building and and uh, the first time that he stepped out on the field for pregame warmups during batting practice. You know, to watching the interaction between Jackie and his teammates. You know, the and to see their response to him. Boy, that would would have been cool to be there on that day. I moderated a panel on Jackie Robinson Day last year with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, including our friend Bob Kendrick. And I went through contemporary accounts of that day and the sense of aura and history that we have in retrospect did not seem to be in play that day. It was just, you know, it was opening day for the Dodgers and here's Jackie Robinson and all of the stuff that uh, kind of went down in spring training and the fact that he had signed. Um, it didn't seem like all that big a deal, even if we wow. know it was. Yeah. Wow. That, that That's surprising given the amount of attention you know, you and I know that great, uh, both in our mind's eye, can see that great picture of when he signed his first contract 
right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. There with Branch Rickey, and and uh, I'm surprised that there wasn't, uh, you know, that there there wasn't an understanding in that moment for more people that uh, that of how pivotal that uh, that was for baseball. All right, let's get to this week's quiz. So we bring in Taylor, we bring in Sarah. Todd, what do you got? Week one, everybody is even. So here we go. Which one of these nations has never participated in the World Baseball Classic? Is it A, Brazil, B, Pakistan, C, Spain, or D, Croatia? Which one of these nations has never participated in the WBC? Brazil, Pakistan, Spain, or Croatia? Uh, I'm going to go B, Pakistan. Taylor, what do you got? I'm going to go Brazil. I'll go Croatia. See, Jan Gomes would disagree with you about Brazil, I think. The, uh, you know, the, the great Cubs catcher. Um, Croatia, China, I don't know a player from Croatia, but my instinct is, is that it's Pakistan, Todd. What do you got? Sarah draws first blood because Croatia oh. has never participated in the WBC. And that would include the qualifiers, of course. Brazil, Pakistan, and Spain have not so much for Croatia. So, Sarah, congratulations. Way to go. Thank you. My back hurts from, you know, carrying. Okay. <laughs> wow. It's early. Enough. It's right. early, right? March. March. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Todd. Uh, thanks for joining us. This is fun as always. Great job on Forgotten Fields. That's awesome. Thanks for having me. Great to be back, guys. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Friday. First up, we have Josh Smith at Chivalry Undead. Josh writes in a good amount, and I have to say to Josh, it's okay to send a question in multiple tweets. If there's like five of tweets, I'm probably not going to read them, but two or three, sure. Um, so Josh's question was a little jumbled there, but he's been following our conversation of Jan on John Angelos. Um, and he says that we said Angelos's actions have kept the all-star game from Baltimore. I don't think that we actually said that, but either way, he's asking it for examples of owners, presumably bad behavior, ex uh, you know, affecting the team in a negative way. No, I said that Peter Angelos's actions uh, kept the all-star game out of Baltimore. Mm. The last time I was there, 1992. Um, and look, I didn't make a case that Peter was right in a couple of instances. One, the whole issue with replacement players in the spring of 95, he was the one owner who wouldn't go along with that because they wanted to preserve Cal Ripken's streak. So I thought Peter was in the right in that case, but he did anger some of the other owners because it uh, kind of broke up their united front. Uh, and then, of course, you have the whole Masson situation, you know, stemming from the, you know, the the fight that uh, Major League Baseball had, the discussion Major League Baseball had with the Orioles. And I've said before in the podcast, I thought Peter Angelos was right in that situation. He extracted a high price for Major League Baseball to agree for the Nationals to go into Washington. And in my opinion is, is that MLB hasn't delivered on some of the promises they made to Peter. I completely agree. I mean, there's so many Nationals fans that used to be Orioles fans. Like, they directly extracted from his fan base. So, I, I don't blame him for and that. I had so many conversations with Peter Angelos about this situation when he said, you know, they want to move a team into Washington, and uh, it's going to crush us. And so, Peter, knowing that, made this deal that was very one-sided financially because he felt like he had to. And as I say, I think MLB's kind of gone back on some of that. Mm-hmm. 
Jeremiah Avis Roos writes in Buster and Sarah Langs, how much do the Pakoda projections figure into your projections? Are they a starting point? No. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll look at a roster, uh, look at the strengths and weaknesses, players who might get called up, and then I'll come up with a number. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, an example of that was, you know, we put Seattle at 90 wins. Pakoda has them at 81.7. So Pakoda didn't affect the thinking of either Hembo or Sarah and myself. Andrew Campbell at Real Camp Drew writes in Buster, I know the numbers Hembo rattled off the other day are astronomical, but is it too, stu- too soon to start drawing comparisons from Jason Dominguez to Juan Soto, both Dominican-born outfielders signed as teenagers with a world of expectations on their shoulders? Drew, I, I am not ready to go there because I think that Soto is a unicorn in terms of his ability to command the strike zone. Like, I... I think there are other great players. I think Jason Dominguez, they tweeted yesterday a, a video of his home run. I mean, it's hard to imagine he's 20 years old. He's so strong physically. He's, he just is stacked. Uh, but I don't know if he's going to be the same type of player. There's only one Soto in terms of command of the strike zone at a young age. Maybe there are two, Ted Williams being another one. Elizabeth Hart at eHart Tweets writes in, this week we saw a batter get called for a pitch clock violation, but the umpire wasn't even ready until nine seconds left because he let the clock run while he was getting new balls. Shouldn't the clock be paused when something like this is happening? I feel like this is something that's going to get ironed out. Yeah, absolutely. Elizabeth, look, you know, I'll go back to that conversation I had with uh, Andy Fletcher in our exhibition game last Thursday, where Andy came over and said to me, look, we're still learning. You know, we're still getting adjusted to this. I think that the not only are the pitchers and hitters adjusting the rhythm of this, but so are the umpires. And you're absolutely right. Uh, Major League Baseball's uh, directions to the umpires is, look, it's your discretion if you feel like the, pit, the, uh, the, the pitch clock needs to be reset. And that might have been a situation that would have called for that. Last one for the week, Derek at Andre Mickendless writes in a question for the entire crew with pitch clock violations counting as box. How long until the single season record for box is broken? Does it happen by Memorial Day? <laughs> Derek, I, I haven't looked up what the single season record for box is, but I think your assumption is safe. Alrighty, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Send them on in over the weekend. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. And we'll be back on Monday, I'm presuming, Buster. Let's have a little show meeting right now. What's our schedule for next week? Yeah, I, I think Monday I'm going to be in Florida. I'm returning to Florida. And I think we're going to – we'll definitely do Wednesday. And then I'm aiming for Friday, St. Pat, Patty's Day, before I go out. So, oh, wow. Green beer. That's, that's your holiday, Buster. All right. Thanks, everyone. Hey. Let me tell you, guys, you know, Bruce, Sarah, Taylor, you guys did a great job this week. You did a great job of the show. This was stacked. I mean, there was a lot of work that got put in the show. So thank you very much. You got it, man. We love doing it. My thanks to Joey Votto, Mike Greenberg, Ravi, Sarah. Have a great day, everybody. Uh, have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.